Okay, if you would please open your Bibles back to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 6. We will be covering that passage which Eddie read just a moment ago. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36. Like Eddie said, this is a difficult passage. Not necessarily for us to understand. I think Jesus is pretty plain. He's using plain language, uh, comprehensible concepts here, but um, difficult, very difficult for our obedience, beyond all of our power, really even beyond all of our desire, because who naturally even wants these things, right? And yet the Lord Jesus Christ calls all of us, his followers, to these things and to this life. Now, when Jesus began his work in northern Israel, in that province of Galilee, a wave of miracles landed in Galilee like the entire world had never witnessed. And it was all at his word. Simply by the power of his word, the very worst human conditions, whether physical or spiritual, were suddenly and immediately reversed. His word delivered people from every kind of despair that there is. And yet with this wave of miracles blew the counter winds of opposition. We see this in Luke 5 and into chapter 6. Luke records these five episodes of controversy and conflict as the religious leaders oppose Jesus. Now in some of those episodes, it might have seemed just like verbal sparring and nothing more. You know, what is the big deal? But don't be deceived by just the verbal sparring. Underneath that lies an incredible hatred for Jesus that is going to climax in Christ's crucifixion. Jesus becomes the Jesus problem to the religious leaders. And they will do anything to rid Israel of him. And so when Jesus calls this new community of faith to himself, as we looked at last week, as he called the the 12 disciples who would be his apostles, representatives in the world, as he calls them to uh, this new community of faith, he calls them to a new way of life. He calls you and me as his followers to a new way of life. And it's not surprising at all for Jesus to speak in terms of opposition, and suffering, because that's the context of this. This message comes on the heels of opposition against him. So he says that those who suffer for his sake are supremely and divinely blessed. And those who live for this world are under the curse of God. He says, blessed are you who are poor. But he also says, woe to you who are rich now. Those who live for this world are cursed of God. Question comes up. How should that first group, who is humanly opposed but divinely blessed, respond to that second group of people who will inevitably oppose the first group? Those who live live it up in this life, who live for this world, will oppose those who deny themselves and take up the cross for Christ's sake. 
So how should we respond when the world opposes us? This is what Jesus answers in the passage we're covering today, beginning in verse 27. If you ask someone, if you ask anyone who knows anything about Jesus and about his teaching to recall any piece of that teaching, they're probably going to come up with a couple of things, and it's quite likely that both of them will come straight from this passage, Luke 6. Anyone who knows anything of Jesus and his teaching will remember Jesus said, love your enemies. And they're also very likely to remember, especially in our day, that Jesus said, do not judge, which is the word that, Lord willing, we're going to cover next week. We're really good at recalling that Jesus said this. We're even better, better at ignoring it. We like that Jesus said it in a way because it's nice. We like nice. It's idealistic. It's definitely a higher standard than other religions. I mean, you watch the news any day and you know that Christianity has a higher standard than Islam. It's intrinsically better. But at the same time, we live in a day that loves a good put-down, don't we? We don't think twice of belittling our opponents. Now, I, I have a different way, a different means of watching TV than the traditional way. It's streamed through our home Wi-Fi these days. So I don't see commercials. But the other day, I did just check out what was going on over the air, put on, you know, use the antenna, and I found, you know, that <laughs> it's dominated by the, the political cycle and the political commercials and ads and all of that that uh, highlight all of these, you know, this belittling of your opponent. And I thought, man, I'm glad I don't have to watch this. And I switched, I switched back to the, the other source. We don't think twice of belittling our opponents. In fact, I think we, we champion the cause. Conservatives are notorious for this. And we can say, well, yeah, but what about the, the, the other side? You know, we're not talking about the other side today. We're going to talk about us today. Conservatives are notorious for this, and social media is atrocious for this. We use the, the social media memes to mock the, the gun controllers, the welfare abusers, the flag burners, and the abortion pushers, and whatever other liberal blight that there is out there that we consider to be infecting our society. And we, we mock them. And we try to look good so they will look bad. We try to sound clever and so on. But what does this belittling, what does belittling your opponent reveal about your heart? I think it reveals this much, that we don't really want to convert them. We want to crush them. We don't want to convert our opponent and win him to our side. We want to do away with him. We don't want them with. We want them gone. We don't want them in. We want them out. 
Now, the lines that are opposing Christianity these days are growing increasingly thick. But all of this political rancor that goes on back and forth all the time is not going to thin those lines back out. It's not going to win people to our side. Belittling doesn't close any gaps between the sides. It only furthers the gaps. It widens them. Belittling someone doesn't win a soul. All it does is harden souls. And there's not an ounce of love in it. I was thinking about Christ's passage this week, Christ's message, and what social media, and not just social media, but face-to-face conversation about what's going on in the culture and so on, what it all degenerates to. I, I know this. You cannot belittle your opponent and at the same time beseech God for his soul. You can't. You won't. It just simply can't be done. You can't put someone down and at the same time lift up his case and lift up his well-being to God. It doesn't work that way. It just simply cannot be done. So one of my goals for today is that all of this, if if we are guilty of it, whether it's on social media or face-to-face conversation, it would be put to a stop in this fellowship of believers. And we would not reduce ourselves to that anymore. But bigger than that, of course, bigger than those conversations and social media is just the heart that we have for those who are outside and how we reach out into the community around us. Jesus said, let's look at it again, if you would, verse 27, but I say to you who hear. Now, this is, this is important. Do you hear? Do you hear the word of Christ? It doesn't mean you just happen to understand what he's saying. You can put those words together and you can get it. You can repeat it back to him. But do you get it in your heart? Do you have spiritual, true perception of what Jesus is saying? He says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. This commandment is the sum of all of the individual commandments in this section. It is the essence of all the particulars that Jesus is going to get into over these several verses. This is the sum of it. Love your enemies. It's the highest Christian virtue. Love your enemies. Now what is Christian love? It's obviously to be distinguished from the love that the world is always talking about and singing about and, and, and showing in film and so on. It's different from cultural, societal love. It's different from the love that's in the world. We're talking about Christian love that we are to show. We cannot reduce this to sentimental feeling. It's not about affinity or attraction. It's not purely emotional. This is key. Christian love is not feeling good for another. It's seeking good for another. Even at my own personal expense. That's Christian love. And let's be even more specific. We're not talking about seeking simply any good whatsoever. But what we are wanting to give to people 
what we are wanting to give even to our opponents is the greatest good of all. And that is Christ. We want to give them Christ. So Christian love is seeking to give Christ even to our enemies, even at cost to ourselves. Now, that's not to say that there isn't feeling involved, because there's going to be feeling involved. We're not heartless. We're not robots. We are going to feel one way or another about anyone, because we aren't heartless. We are head. I'm going to come back to this toward the end of this message. But this is important to remember just in understanding who we are in ourselves. We are head, we are heart, and we are hand. We are mind, heart, and strength. There's a number of ways that this could be said. But our hearts are going to feel one way or another about a person. What should we feel, according to Jesus, for our enemies? In love, we should feel sympathy toward those who oppose us. We should feel compassion toward those who oppose us, and we should sincerely long for their good. That's how we should feel. Now, what if you don't? What if you don't feel that good? And again, I'm not really talking about feeling some kind of affinity with them or feeling a closeness to those who oppose us. Because if, if someone invaded your house and got the best of you and tied you up, and you're sitting there tied up, hands behind your back, bound, and you're watching them from your seat as they ransack your house, you're not going to be thinking, man, I feel so close to you right now, right? So we're not talking about that. So, But what if you don't feel that sympathy and compassion and you don't long for their good? Jesus' answer is, you do them good anyway. So let's read the rest of verse 27. He said, Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. These are the actions of love that Jesus commands of us. That we are to show those who oppose us and who want to hurt us. What do do our opponents want? They want to win over us. What should we want? Not to win over them, but to win them over. They want us out. We are to want them in. But when you have no affinity with them, and you don't like them, and you don't feel like you can give them your heart, Jesus still calls us to give them our hands. Jesus calls us to serve those who want to hurt us. You can serve. You can still do good. You can still bless and you can still pray even as you don't feel the feelings of love within your heart, sympathy and compassion and a longing for their good. And prayer is key. The last thing he mentioned is so key for how we respond to our enemies. Because if you neglect to pray for others, you will find it very hard to love them. It will be very hard not to be glad when they suffer. To do a fist pump in your heart and say, yes, finally they got what was coming to them. It will be very hard not to respond like that in the day they suffer if you don't pray for them. I'll tell you what will happen if you pray. On the other side 
on the other side of your consistent asking for your enemy's well-being is a genuine wanting it and being used of God to achieve it. On the other side of you consistently asking that God would do your enemy good. On the other side of asking that God would lift up your opponent and the one who doesn't like you and the one who mistreats you in the workplace and the person who talks behind you, behind your back. On the other side of you consistently asking God to do them good is genuinely wanting their good and being used of God to achieve it. As you pray for their well-being, I guarantee you, sympathy and compassion will follow. It will grow within your heart. And so you give them service with your hands, which includes doing good, so general, blessing them and praying for them. You do that good with your hands. Your heart is going to follow suit. And you will genuinely want their good. So you have the acts of love. You have the acts of love, but the feelings will follow when you are faithful to do the acts. So I've realized this in my own personal experience. Definitely. I've had people who have done me harm, people that I have neglected to pray for. And so it has been very hard for me when they have done me harm to put bitterness down and to not have grudging and vengeful feelings. And I have also had people who have done me harm. Before the harm was done, I prayed for them. After the harm was done, I prayed for them. And I genuinely, as I prayed, the feelings followed. I genuinely wanted God to do them good. And when the harm came, although I was hurt, I wasn't vengefully angry. It was so much easier to put the grudge away and just to let it go and to offer forgiveness. Prayer makes the difference. When you consistently come before the Lord for someone's good, for anyone's good, your heart is going to follow suit. You will really want their good and you will rejoice in the day that God gives it to them. This is so important. Jesus said, To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Now, how do we understand this? Imagine doing someone good, and for your good, they return evil. They actually, literally, with their right hand, backhand you across the face. It's not just a slap. This is true in our day, and it was true in Jesus' day. It's not just a slap. The backhanded slap is extremely insulting. Now, what is Jesus saying We how we must respond? Okay, you get backhand across the right side of the face. Are you supposed to actually turn for the left side and say, okay, again, hit me with it? I don't think so. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, because... For the first thing, it's twisted. That's a a twisted response. Second thing, Jesus does not want us to encourage their evil. He doesn't. He doesn't want us to encourage their evil. So what is Jesus after? Well, obviously, he's not after retribution. He doesn't say, hit them back. Strike out. Make sure they get theirs. He's not after retribution. 
He is not after the continuation of their evil either. He's not looking for them to get away with it. He is not after retribution. He is after their repentance. That's what Jesus desires. The repentance of our enemies and our opponents and those who don't follow him. What is the context of this face slap again? The context is, we're doing good, we're following Christ, we're living the new life, and for that good that we give, people return evil. We give good and they slap us in the face, they insult us. So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he is telling us this, by your good, you put yourself in the position where suffering was possible because people are evil and they return evil for good. You put yourself in the position to suffer. Keep doing the good. Keep doing the good. Don't give up in love. Don't grow weary in doing good. Put yourself in the position to suffer again. That's what turning the other cheek means. He's saying, do the good a second time that got you hurt once already. That's turning the other cheek. Do the good a second time that got you hurt once already. Keep loving. How, how does this possibly achieve repentance? Because the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. The love of God, this is, that's Romans 2 verse 4. God's kindness, His love leads us to repentance. So as we maintain speaking the truth, In love, we are hoping that God will give them repentant hearts. Jesus goes on to say, the end of verse 29, And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Let's consider, start, verses 29, the end of 29 and 30. Now the broad principle here is what? What is the sum of all of these individual commandments? It's love your enemies. That's the broad commandment. Now Jesus is getting into the particulars. Again, the question has to be asked, is Jesus speaking literally? If someone begs of us, Everything we have, are we just supposed to hand it over? Now, the particulars of love might look like this, literally. Someone asks you for your coat, you give them your shirt too, if you're in such a position. The particulars of love might look like this, but also they might not look like this. If someone asks you for everything that you have, Do not put your house, your car, and your bank account in their name. Don't hand over your entire wardrobe. Don't do it. That would be dumb. Really dumb. Because we know, especially for you men, husbands, fathers, if we don't care for our families, if we don't provide for our families, Jesus said, um, Timothy, Titus, I can't remember which one, We're worse. We're acting worse than an unbeliever. So how how do we apply this? Well, we have to consider some things we know. We, We know that Jesus doesn't mean for us to go naked. We know that. All right? 
And if we take this literally in every occasion and give someone not only the cloak and tunic, that would be going naked. But we know that Jesus doesn't literally want us to go naked. We know that he doesn't mean for our children to be naked and homeless and starving to death. We know that. We also know, number two, he doesn't want us to indulge anyone's injustice. We are not to indulge any injustice because that's not going to do them or anyone else any favors, is it? If we indulge their injustice, we're going to turn that beggar into an extorter and we're going to turn our neighbor into their next victim if we indulge injustice. The point is we don't want the thief gone. We want the thief in. We don't want the thief crushed. We want the thief converted. So our love is to send this message. You don't have to be on the outside a thief. You can be inside and be blessed and learn to be a blessing. That's the message that our love should send to them. Did How, how often do we see uh, thieves become Christians? It happened in the early church. Thieves became Christians. They went from taking to blessing. Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He said, let the thief no longer steal. Why would he say that to the church as he instructed them how to act, how to live a holy life? Because there were, there were former cons in the church. He said, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. How did the thief end up in the church? Someone loved their enemy. Someone maintained a a message of love and truth together. And the thief was converted to Christ. So Jesus is saying, love your enemy. Love him, love her, and do so. This is, the, I think, the message of these couple verses here. Do so generously. Love and not just a little. Love generously. Jesus is telling you, love to give to them more than they love to take. Love to give more than they love to take. Love the sinner more than they love their sin. Love to give to that person in your workplace who has nothing for you more than they love to take from you. Love their soul more than they love their sin. Tall order. Daunting task. Impossible within our own resources. Impossible to do from our own hearts. This is what Jesus calls us to. Verse 31, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This is not about tit for tat. This is not about reciprocity. It's not about, you know, I gave you 20 bucks that one time, now you buy my takeout. I gave you a favor, now you do me a favor. No, Jesus is simply meaning here exactly plainly what he says. This is the the easiest of these verses to comprehend. 
He says, out of love, treat others just as you want to be treated. How do you like to be treated? Do you like a warm smile? Then smile warmly. Do you appreciate generosity? Be generous. Do you enjoy kindness? Then be kind. And if someone takes advantage of your kindness, keep on being kind. If you are constantly sowing love and other people are just reaping, mooching off of your graciousness, keep on sowing love. Keep on being kind. If you suffer for your love, do the good a second time that has already cost you once. That's the message of Christ. Now, let's consider verses 33 and 34. Ahead of that, let me say, we thrive in the church off the good that we give to one another. I I love being a part of this church family. I love being on the giving end and the receiving end of the generosity and the warmth and the kindness and the service that takes place in this fellowship of believers all the time. And I hope that anybody who comes in these doors for just a minute will receive that generosity for themselves and love it and come back because of it. I do believe that we have a a warmth of welcome and kindness here that I wouldn't give up for anything. we, We live off of this. We're built up and strengthened off of this. But Jesus says, if we only love those who love us, what benefit is that to us? Let's keep reading. For even sinners do the same. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. He is saying that even those who are outside the community of faith live like this and love like this. Why would anyone want to be a part of a gang? Obviously, I'm not speaking from personal experience here. Why would anyone want to be a part of that? From what I understand, it's because the gang has your back. The gang is family. They're going to watch out for you. The gang takes care of its own. It is perfectly normal for sinners to love where love is mutual. That's normal. That's human. Anything less than that, we see the world descend to this, but anything less than that is demonic. Even though we are sinners, because of God's common grace to all mankind, we still see the kind of love in the world where love is returned for love. Anyone can love where love is mutual, where it's reciprocated. So there are two things that must set apart our love from the love of the world. First, our love must not seek reciprocity. It's not about karma. It's not about what goes around. We have the hope what goes around will come back around to us. It's not about tit for tat. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. It's about self-sacrifice. It really is love for the sake of another even at my own personal expense. That's the first thing that separates our love from the love of the world. It's a self-sacrificial love. 
Second thing, our love is not just for those who are like us, but for those who aren't like us, who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who don't live like us in the least. So it's love for those people whose beliefs are completely opposite from our own. But not just beliefs that are completely opposite, but love for people who push their beliefs back onto us. So Jesus calls us to love not only the atheist, but he calls us to love those who push atheism. He calls us to love not only the homosexual, but those who flaunt homosexuality. He calls us to love the sinner who not only isn't like us, but who doesn't like us. And that is what separates us from the world. That's what takes our love into the stratosphere. Off the charts. Incredible, supernatural love. Jesus said in verse 35 again, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. This section of Jesus' message is very repetitive, isn't it? He starts with love your enemies, comes to a close with love your enemies, all of this about doing good, expecting nothing in return. I mean, some of this stuff, it feels like he said it three or four times. Why is it so repetitive? He wants you to hear. He wants me to hear it, to hear him, to listen and to follow, not to be just a hearer of the word, but to be a doer. And true hearing, the spiritual hearing, is not just being able to recite Jesus said, love your enemies. It is actually loving your enemies. He is not looking to just throw the seed of the word of God onto the surface soil of our hearts. This section is so repetitive and so emphatic because he wants to take this seed and he wants to plant it deep. He wants this word to take root in your heart and my heart and actually bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Now, all of that leads to how in the world, right? It really does. Not not the how do I do this practically, because Jesus has already covered that, but how do I even get started? How can I ever? Because this is the furthest thing from me. We still are we still have the flesh with us. We still have that sin nature. Everything revolves around me. I'm the center of the universe. We still have that within us. So if we're able to love those who love us, give to those who give to us, reciprocate love, I mean, how can we get into the stratosphere of love where we are actually loving those who would do us harm? How can we? We have to get our hearts and we have to get our minds in the proper frame. We have to have the right mindset, the right heart set. That's how you want to put it. So Jesus says, love your enemies. And then following, and your reward will 
be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. How can we be motivated to this kind of love? Earlier I said in our makeup, our structure, our nature, we are head, heart, and hand. We are mind, heart, and strength, right? So if we are going to love with our hands and our hearts, we must understand love in our minds. We must understand love. How do you do this? You have to keep at the forefront of your consciousness the truth that even while you were yet a sinner, Jesus Christ died for you. And that is the demonstration of the love of God. Romans 5.8 You must keep at the forefront of your consciousness the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says here that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And that is our motivation. That is what spurs us on to love those who are ungrateful for our good. Those who are evil in the face of the good that we give. This is what motivates and spurs our love. God was kind to them. Wait a second. That was us. Now we're thinking God is kind to them, so I must be kind. But we were there. We were them. We were on the outs and we deserved to be there. We were the traitors who deserved to be crushed. And yet God wanted us in. And so he gave us good. He set his heart on us. He set his love on us. And he drew us in by his mercy. He loved us when the last thing we ever deserved was love and the first thing we deserved was judgment. He loved us. At cost? Did it cost him? Was it at personal expense? The creator took on the form of the creature to become the creature's servant. The creator took on the form of the creature to become the creature's substitute in life and death. Our substitutionary sacrifice, the divine life, took on human life to lay that human life down so that we could be drawn near to God. The divine life became human life to bear the divine wrath against human sin. Did our good cost him? Did our good cost Jesus Christ, innocent and holy, pure Son of God? He became a man so that as a man, he could give up every good that a man ever gains so that man could have the greatest good, which is Jesus himself, the God-man. God became a man so that he could give up every good that a man can gain so that all of mankind could receive the greatest good of all, which is Jesus himself. So think about this. He took up the need for human resources. He needed that. He needed human resources, but he took 
up that need of human resources so he could give it up and be poor. He took up the need, took on the need of human nourishment so he could give it up and be weak and be weary. He took on the need of human friendship and he gave it up to be denied and to be forsaken. He took on human dignity and gave it up for shame. He took on human skin and he gave it up to be torn and nailed and hung in crucifixion. He took on human communion with God and he gave it up to be forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took on human life and he gave it up for death so that we who are his enemies naturally from the start could be drawn near to God and reconciled to him in his mercy so that we could live, live with him and reign with him. So now as we follow him, as we follow suit and imitate him and show lavish mercy as we have been given even more lavish mercy, he promises us great reward. He says, now, when you live like this, I recognize my father in you. Chips off the old block kind of language. That's what this is. He says, I recognize then my father in you. He calls us sons of the Most High and promises us great reward. Well, where are you? Long way to go? I have a long way to go. A long way. Can't do this. I can't even think like this in myself in my resources, according to my heart. This requires the fullness of God's Holy Spirit and transformation of life. So what must you do? Let me recap just a couple of things. I know some of you are in bad workplaces. I hear about some of you have a great work community. There are some within this church family that have an awful work community backstabbing, bitterness, rumors, scandals, jealousy, fighting to get to the top. How do you love people like this? Especially when they turn all of that against you personally. Before they have a chance to do you harm, begin to pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that God will do them good. Pray that God would draw them to himself. Pray that God would lift them up. And even if you don't feel like you really want that, as you pray for it, on the other side of consistent asking, you will genuinely want it. So when they do you harm, it will be so much easier for you to put down bitterness and let go of the grudge and treat them with kindness anyway. Pray for your enemy 
It's key. Remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because as much bad as someone inflicts upon you, it does not begin to compare with what we have inflicted upon Jesus Christ, the innocent Son of God. Although we weren't there in the literal sense, we were there when we crucified our Lord. Remember the gospel. Remember that you were the undeserving. Remember that you were the evil. Remember that you were the undeserving recipient of the lavish mercy of God in Jesus. I wonder, and I I feel like I have to wonder this because we still have such a far way to go. I wonder what God would do through a community of believers, a fellowship, covenant fellowship of saints who lived this out. What would God do through us for our community if we truly loved this? No more belittling. No more bitterness against them. No more putting them down in our conversations. All of the stuff that they bring into our society, our culture that is killing us from within, if we would just keep our mouths shut and stop putting them down, as D.A. Carson famously put it, stop putting them down except on our prayer list. What would God do through us? Let's ask for the fullness of His Spirit and His help to accomplish just this. Father, we thank You for the love that You have shown to us when we were out, when we were undeserving, undeserving of mercy and fully deserving of judgment, yet you showered upon us, you still do, and you will for all of eternity lavish the riches of your kindness upon us. We we thank you, because we will never be deserving of your great love. And we live in a world of undeserving people who don't care at all that they aren't in with you and don't deserve you, who don't care about their sins and their scandals and how their darkness corrupts this nation. We live in a world of that. But Lord, no matter what they do against us, you have told us plainly it doesn't compare with what we have done. And yet we have received mercy. Are we greater than our Lord that we cannot show mercy to a sinner? Help us to think this way. I pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be at the forefront of our thinking, not buried into our subconscious somewhere, but we would always remember the love that we have been given. So I pray that you would fill us with your spirit to go into the community, into the furthest, darkest corners and love with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that receiving your kindness through us would lead to repentance and bring transformation to many lives. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.